Hi, I'm Jonas from Seattle. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. This week on the show, the great Jenna Fisher. She plays Pam on the NBC sitcom The Office, one of the best comedies on television. In this scene, she's trying to convince her boss, Michael Scott, to buy chairs instead of a new copy machine with an unexpected budget windfall. Hey, have I told you you look really nice today? Oh, thank you. Yeah, is that a new tie? Um, no. Not, no, no, I got it at TJ Maxx, $4. That is amazing! You think that's good? Check out these pants. Nine dollars. What? Nine dollars. The boys are No. Look at the ass. Check out the ass. No Look at that. way! Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is the actress Jenna Fisher. She has uh, starred in uh, several movies, and she's probably best known for playing Pam Beasley on NBC's. The Office. Uh, Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a it's a really great to have you. I'm so happy we could have you on the show. Um, so you're originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Did you? At what point did you decide that you aspired to become an actress? I wanted to be in Hollywood and in the movies and all the glamour from the time I was a little girl. I think I was always really fascinated with it. And my mom always brought home old movies like Elizabeth Taylor movies or Grace Kelly um, and so I was introduced to the idea of Hollywood from those old glamorous movie stars. And, um, so I was always really fascinated with that. And then growing up, I did a lot of theater in high school and, but I went to college w- uh, and majored in history, pre-law history. And it wasn't until my junior year that I had been doing enough things with the theater department that it felt silly to continue to pursue my history major, which I never even got enough credits for a minor in history. And I ended up <laughs> graduating from college with a major in theater and a minor in journalism. So you, it was the, it was the sort of glamorous Hollywood side of it. I know oftentimes for an adolescent girl, and I'm allowed to say this because I went to theater high school, mm-hmm. um, there's this, uh, there's a very strong performance part of it and part of it about becoming someone else and, and that kind of thing that that an adolescent girl gets re- really into in uh, in getting into theater in their adolescent years. I think the real truth is that initially, as an adolescent, the thing that was exciting to me was the glamour and the prestige and the fame and the jewelry. I, always the jewelry. I found Elizabeth Taylor's <laughs> jewelry collection. I was like, what do I have to do to get a necklace like that? Really, you either had to like marry a prince or become an actress. And um, really wanted. <laughs> there were those probably diamonds. relatively few princes <laughs> yeah. in St. Louis at the time. And there were, and also just in my age range, I just was born <laughs> at a time when there were not a lot of eligible princes. But then, you know, when I started studying acting, um, it was you know the thing that kept me going, the thing that kept me in that direction was really the love of acting. And, um, but that did come later, you know, because I, I'm not sure there are a lot of 
eight-year-olds who are like dying to act. You know, and then I, I moved to Hollywood from St. Louis after college. I graduated and I worked as a secretary for a year in St. Louis and I saved about $8,000. And then I moved out with that next nest egg and I moved in with a friend of mine who I had gone to college with. He was already living here and uh, he needed a roommate. So I moved in with him into this dingy, disgusting apartment in West Hollywood that had like it, it was like felt like it was almost underground. It had leaded glass windows and a torn bed sheet as a curtain. And my cat was so depressed by the lack of sunlight that he started licking patches of his fur out <laughs> out God. of like because it was so miserable. And I lived there for like years. I lived in this like he moved out. He got a girlfriend moved out. I put an ad in the paper and got a new room. Like, I, for whatever reason, stayed in this horrible place. How did you feel about it if the cat was licking its hair out? You know, I didn't mind it because I was so focused on being an actor. And I was willing to forego any luxuries when it came to clothes or shoes or places to live. I just wanted everything to be geared toward... Um, you know, if I had an extra $800, I was going to spend it on an acting class or new headshots. I wasn't going to put it into rent. So for me, it was just all part of the sacrifice of making it. And I just really, I did it really slowly. What was your first uh, professional gig in LA? It was a training video that they played at UCLA Medical Center. And they played it for mental patients upon their release from the mental ward. When you were when you were performing, when you got this gig, did you realize at the time that you were performing in a parody of an actor's first gig? No, I got paid a hundred dollars, and it was a sex education video. It was to teach people about um, birth control, the various forms of birth control. People, specifically people being released from the mental hospital. That's right. That's what I was told. And so I played a young girl who was going on her first date. And I said to my sister, I can't wait to go out with Bill. And she says, well, do you have protection? And I say, protection? Protection from what? And she says, oh, come with me. And then she opens up a drawer in the bathroom that is filled with every birth control device ever. <laughs> and we go through each one and discuss the uses. And there were like chastity belts in there. Yeah, it was like the weird things you would never have, like an IUD, which is like something that's implanted by your doctor. We had one in her bathroom drawer. <laughs> and she explains it. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actress Jenna Fisher. She's best known as Pam on NBC's hit sitcom The Office, among her many other roles. Did you doubt your ability to succeed when you were when you were pushing so hard? I had a lot of doubts, especially I would say around my third year anniversary of being in Los Angeles, because every year that I was here was it was like every May because I moved out here in in May was really significant because it's sort of, I would take stock of where am I compared to where was I last year. And around year three, when I just was, things were really dragging and I was really low, I had a, a boyfriend and he really wanted me to move back to his hometown and uh, get married. He was a chiropractor and um, he was a great guy. And I just couldn't leave. And I thought to myself that even if I never like made it or was a household name or any of those things that I truly loved acting so much that it was enough for me to simply live in a city that didn't put a ceiling on what I could do creatively. But it wasn't like I did that thinking 
yeah, I'm going to stay because I'm going to make it. It was really like, I'm going to stay if I make it or not. And it's okay if I don't. One of the things that strikes me as, as really scary about the actor's lifestyle is the extent to which you have to give up control of your career to other people that basically every bit of work, you know, every week of work that you have is because you had to pass through a gatekeeper who said, you know, yes, you can do something. Um, Was it, was it scary or frustrating to have this career where there was besides the uh, uh, ever popular Los Angeles one person show Um, there was so little that you could do without getting someone's sort of permission to do it? I would say that's one of the most frustrating parts about being an actor is that um, if you're a painter or a writer or a musician, you can practice your art by yourself. And um, I think you can get some fulfillment out of it. But it's really not that much fun to just act in your apartment by yourself. There there is like the the need for an audience is so important. And also... um, I used to say I'm actually a professional auditioner because I did more auditioning than I did acting. And um, so much of being an actor is getting work. I think you spend more time getting work than you do actually acting, especially in the beginning. But even now, I I think um, one of the things that surprised me the most, like my idea of what it meant to be an actor versus what it does, is how little control and power actors have. Even now, even being on a television show. You know, I remember I was sitting on set of the office early on and uh, I wanted a cup of coffee. So I went to get up from the reception desk between takes to get a cup of coffee. And one of the PAs came by and said, oh, what do you need, General? I'll get you anything you need, anything you need. What do you need? I said, well, I'd like some coffee. They're like, great, I'll get you coffee. And I'm like, but with I want this, the cream and sugar. And but I can I just I'll just get it. I'll just get it because, you know, how you make your own coffee is how you make your own coffee. And um, they're like, no, 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 just stay there. We want to get it for you. And I realized in that moment that it it could be interpreted as, oh, actors being waited on hand and foot. But the truth is they want to control where you are at all times. If I get up from my desk, who knows where I might wander off to? And everything needs to be really efficient. And in some ways, I'm the same as the desk. Like the desk can't leave the set. I can't leave the set or else everything goes awry. And so there are a lot of things about your life that, you, you lose a lot of freedom, actually, which um, I think I didn't realize. When I, when I worked in an actual office, I could get up and get coffee anytime, or I could get up and go to the bathroom anytime. But being an actor on a set, it's kind of like being back in third grade where you have to like raise your hand and ask permission. Like, Excuse me, is this a good time to use the restroom? Excuse me, may I get a drink of water? It's not what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have the Constitution to hold up to the fact that... Um you know, every time you went on an audition, it was almost certain that they weren't going to pick you? Yes. In fact, I had a teacher who said something great, which was, go out and collect your no's. And once you get 50 no's, then you can start wondering when you're going to get a yes. So every time you go out and someone says no to you, just be glad because you need about 50 of those before you can expect to get a job. And so that helped. And also he said, it's not your job to get the job. It's your job to do a consistent body of work. So every time you go in there, just go in there and be consistent. And eventually it'll get noticed and someone will hire you. And that's actually what happened with The Office. The casting director who cast The Office had been calling me in for about five years on various projects. And sometimes I would get one line on a TV show she was working on. Or, you know, one time she called me in for a miniseries and I didn't get the job. But she just would call me in once or twice a year. 
And because I think I had built up that consistent body of work with her where I could show her I could come in and do a good job consistently, she felt confident enough to ask me to come audition for the producers of The Office. And that's the one that hit, you know, but you never know. Did you audition for things for which you were particularly ill-suited? Yes. I consider one of my more successful auditions was for a job that I was ill-suited and didn't get, which was, um, it was for a sitcom and I can't remember which one at the time, but it said Pamela Anderson type. <laughs> and it was this really sexy waitress. And I was so embarrassed and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I and I talked to my acting teacher about it and he was like, don't decide for other people what you're right for. Let them decide. So I thought, all right. So I put on a little jean skirt and went and did it. And I did not get the job. But about two years later, I got an audition for a movie where I had to play a prostitute. And I was like, oh, no, I can do this. I can do this. And I had a, a new confidence because I had done it once. And even though I failed, I had done it. And I went in and I did get that job. I got this little funny prostitute role in a Matt Dillon movie. I thought it was really interesting that you um, partly got into acting with the idea of uh, it being a wonderful way to be glamorous when you're biggest break, you know, getting the role of Pam on The Office is basically defined by its unglamorousness. Like your your role on The Office is to be a beautiful and likable lady who is completely without glamour. <laughs> right. Um, that is, I never put that together until just now, the <laughs> irony of that. And also, once I grew up, and I realized the amount of hours it takes to look like those glamorous women and, and the maintenance involved, I became completely uninterested in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, I couldn't be, I mean, I couldn't be less interested now in all of that. One of the um, funny things about acting is that in acting training, which can you know go on indefinitely, um, it's rare for there to be much comedy technique involved unless you're doing something uh specifically comedic and, and many of our biggest comic stars come from a comedy training background rather than an acting training background somebody like steve carell from the office for mm -hmm. example who who comes from a, a, an improv background what skills did you have to learn uh as a comic actress that you uh might not have otherwise learned if you were just you know doing whatever well I don't have any um, sketch comedy background. I was never in an improv group, and um, I think I would fail miserably as a sketch <laughs> performer on a show like Saturday Night Live. I, um, I actually, um, what I, when when I since I have a more traditional theater training, um, a lot of my theater training was about reacting. And um, a big phrase in my theater school was acting is reacting and acting is listening. And it's not about being showy or talking. And so I sort of applied that theory to comedy. And I found that it was really successful. And I think so much of Pam is reacting and um, making, you know, a big thing about theater acting is about being generous to the other actor and making them look good. Like whatever you can do to make somebody else look better, that's what you should be doing. It shouldn't be about yourself. And so applying that to comedy, especially since when I did come out to Los Angeles and take some improv classes, it oftentimes those improv classes are just a bunch of people like fighting for the spotlight. <laughs> 
And um, I'm not, I'm also not naturally clever or like quick witted. And so I found that saying nothing or pausing or reacting to somebody else was the best way that I could get a laugh and also the best way to set them up for a witty comment, which they were going to have much more quickly than I would. We'll have more with actress Jenna Fisher when we come back in just a minute on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're a fan of Jordan Jesse Go, this is a very special week. It's the first and maybe only week that we'll be offering a Jordan Jesse Go t-shirt. It's printed on super premium alternative apparel tees. It's beautiful, handsome, attractive, and you can get it online this week only. That's right, for seven days total at MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jenna Fisher. She plays the perpetually put-upon secretary, Pam, on the NBC sitcom The Office. In this clip, as in many scenes on the program, her boss, Michael Scott, is embarrassing her. Oh, that. Well, that is Pam. Pam is coming along as my assistant and my driver so I can focus. Every magician has a hot assistant, and every rock star has a roadie, and Pam is my hot roadie. Yeah. So what we do is we drive all day, and we stay in hotels together. Like separate rooms. Well, that goes without saying. I'm going to say it anyway. Hey, look at what you're wearing again, Pam. Have you ever seen a magician's assistant? That's... This is a new cardigan. Kind of blech. Maybe you could tie it around your waist, or... Lose the shirt underneath or something. No. Did you have a plan when you auditioned for The Office? Um, Had you seen The British Office? Did you have an idea of what choices you were going to make? I did. I had seen The British Office, and I was a huge fan. The audition for The Office was improv. And um, I knew they were calling in a lot of sketch performers and a lot of improv comedy people. And because I knew of their tendency to do a lot, I thought, I'm going to do very little. And the casting director actually said to me, Jenna, I want you to come in, and we've been seeing a lot of people, and everybody's doing so much. I want to dare you to be boring. Like, dare to bore us. Do as little as possible. That's really what we want. And she said, and please don't look pretty. Like, please don't glam up. Come in really just looking really normal. I would imagine that's an unusual instruction to get from a casting director. It definitely is because I've gone in for a lot of roles as like a third grade teacher and they're like, but sexy. I'm like, really? Sexy third grade? Okay. <laughs> it was inappropriate to me. But So usually they want you to be sexier and, and they usually say things like, we can always imagine you uglier. So show us sexy. We can always pull back. But with, in this case, she really was like, don't wear much makeup. And um, we want, you know, someone who just looks really authentic. So I wore one of my actual outfits that I would wear as a temporary office temp. And um, it was that button-down shirt, which has now become a staple of Pam's wardrobe, and a cardigan because, you know, offices are chilly. And I went in and I didn't say much because my take on it was if this were a real person, a real girl in Scranton, Pennsylvania – And they brought in a bunch of documentary cameras. 
She wouldn't be very media savvy. She wouldn't be quick-witted because this would be an unusual situation that she wasn't used to. And yet at the same time, I imagine she was a rather polite person who wouldn't want to say bad things about her boss or her office. And yet I wanted you to be able to read all of it on her face as she considered her answer. So she would think about her answer, which would reveal everything, but then say that she really liked working there. And so that was my plan when I went in there. And I think that I, I felt like it really worked. I felt like I, that was the thing that made the difference. The uh, auditions for the show, as I understand it, involved um, something that they often do on a, uh, on a sitcom, especially one where relationships are really important, which is sort of rotating cast members or potential cast members, I should say, uh, making new combinations and, and seeing what works. Did you see unusual choices in working with with other actors that you that you didn't expect? Were there things that surprised you in, you know, working with the whatever it was four or five people who who might become Jim or the three or four people who might become uh, the boss or, or or what have you? I think the thing that surprised me the most were the different Dwight's. There were four different people who were in for Dwight, and they were completely different. Each one of them, Rain Wilson completely stood out because he was a master improviser and he's really smart. But there was there was another guy that I thought was a really funny take and he looked sort of like a shorter version of Steve Carell. And it was very funny because when you saw them together, it was sort of like Michael Scott and mini-me Michael Scott. But I, I think, you know, BJ, who plays Ryan, ended up sort of being like this what Steve perceived to be, oh, this is a better looking version of me. I wish I were this guy. And so they couldn't really, and a BJ had already been cast. And so they didn't, I think, you know, I don't know who knows why, but you can't have too many, many Steve Carell's <laughs> running around. Right. <laughs> but, um, but I, but it's a know, general rule they use for yeah. sitcoms. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And when I was auditioning, they only matched me up with rain Wilson one time. And, um, they matched me up with John Krasinski several times, and I thought, again, for sure, like, this guy is going to be Jim. He's the best. Of all the Jims I read with, he was just had this thing. And I really, really wanted him to get the role. And so I was feeling good every time they matched me up with John Krasinski because I'm like, yeah, I must be their Pam because they keep matching me up with John. But then they weren't matching me up with Rain, who I was <laughs> convinced was Dwight. And so then I didn't know what to think. But when they called me and said that I had been cast – the first question I asked was, did John Krasinski get the role of Jim? And they said, yes. And I talked to John later and he said, the first thing he asked was, did Jenna Fisher get the role of Pam? So we were like, sort of like career soulmates or whatever, just from the beginning, just from the audition, we hit it off. You just got yourself kicked out of your apartment. <laughs> oh, I don't care. I didn't really like that place that much anyway. I'll just move. Oh, really? Who's going to take you in? You're messy. You're a klutz, you spill everything. And you leave the volume on the TV way too loud. Yeah. Maybe I'll just move in with my boyfriend because he's kind of a slob too. Okay, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> no, I um well I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna move in with anyone unless I'm engaged. Have I not proposed to you yet? Mm, I don't no. Oh. No? Well, mm -mm. That's coming. Oh, right now? No. I'm not going to do it right here. That would be rather lame. Okay, so then when? Pam, I'm not going to tell you. hate to break it to you, but that's not how that works. Oh, right. Yeah. Wait, I'm serious. 
It's happening. Okay. And when it happens, it's going to kick your ass, Beasley. So, stay sharp. I've been warned. The British version of The Office has a love story in it that's similar to uh, your love story with uh, John Krasinski's character. But the British version of The Office is a... uh, a British television series, which means you know six six or nine episode seasons, and it, and it only ran for two years. Um, so that arc kind of goes over the course of three or four hours of screen time, rather than mm-hmm. twenty plus episodes a year for uh, now. Is this is the fifth season of The Office, right? Fifth season, and our season finale this year will be our one hundredth episode. So that's that's you know fifty hours of television. What kind of challenge is it for you as an actress to sort of play this long story out in a really long way? I'm just really glad that it hasn't become a soap opera, that they haven't just kept breaking us up and getting us back together. And um, I feel like the whole point of this couple was that they're supposed to be just like us, people we relate to. And... um, you know, at a certain point, as much fun as the sort of like unrequited love part is and the newness of love, like eventually we all mature and our relationships mature. And I think I, I'm just really happy that that's also being represented in a television show that it, you know, I think they're one another's true love. And when you're one another's true love, I don't think you should be breaking up all the time over like little silly things. I, it's more interesting to me to see them grow through life together there's a series coming up soon on nbc that was that was originally announced as a spin-off of the office that has become um a, a show that will share the same tone as the office from the creators of the office mm-hmm. um as ridiculous as that explanation seems it also kind of makes makes sense because the office has such a specific tone like if you said um, you know, as 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 much as it's a, a very funny show, you know, in the tone of How I Met Your Mother, you would say, well, you mean like it's a sitcom with some young people that joke around and funny hijinks happen to them? Right. Um, whereas if you say that about The Office, it actually has a very specific meaning. Um, who who guides you or who guided you, especially at the beginning in finding that right tone and especially the kind of the structural elements as a screen actor of like understanding how to relate to the cameras as the the characters on the show do, for example. It was a lot of discussions with Greg Daniels, the creator, and Ken Quapis, the director of our pilot, who has come back to direct many episodes. And um, when we first started, he would make us, the entire cast, um, come to work every morning, and we had to be at our desks by 7 a.m. And we had 30 minutes of fake work time where (laughs) we there was nothing scripted and the documentary cameras would walk around the set and film us fake working and in fact a lot of the shots from the title sequence are from those fake work sessions just of me passing papers or someone answering a phone and um there was another he created a number of rules actually one of them was that the set had to be made with immovable walls which is really unusual. Usually, um, if you want to get a really neat shot, um, they can just take a wall out. Well, our walls are immovable. And that was because he wanted us to be confined to these spaces so that it would look more like a documentary. And another rule was that the only people allowed on set 
were the actors, the director, and the um, the crew members that were required for the scene, which would just be like a boom operator and two cameramen. Normally on a movie, you know, people don't know this, but there, I mean, there are tons of people. There are hair and makeup people, and every time somebody yells cut, they like you have three people that swarm you and powder you and fix your wardrobe. And our director was like, absolutely not. If, if hair falls in someone's face, that happens in life, and we're going to capture it. If someone's sweating, they're sweating, and all these things. And so um, we had this really serene environment that was created, and um, that all put us into this certain place. And they connected all our phones. And during that 30 minutes, we could f- we could call one another, but only about business. And we had to improvise. <laughs> and the whole... And to be clear, you weren't running an actual business. We were not running an actual business. But Greg Daniels wanted originally to put the actual accountants who were like the accountants in charge of payroll for the television show on the set and have them work. <laughs> and we realized, though, that it would cause a real sound problem because their phones would have to ring. And it would eventually be distracting. But in the pilot of the office, you can see those two women in the conference room because he thought they might be a part of the show. <laughs> he like pulled the actual women out of their offices on set, out of their trailer. But um, our fake accounting department, the Dunder Mifflin accounting department of Angela, Brian, and Oscar, their whole dynamic was created in these 30-minute fake work sessions. Angela would get irritated with Brian. and They just came up with this cute little thing that worked its way into the show and the whole thing about Angela and her cats, that was created. Angela, one day during the 30-minute work session, walked up to my desk with a Post-it note and said, I'd like to invite you to my cat's birthday party. <laughs> and and I was like, okay. And then later, I was doing a scene with John when we were actually filming, and they said, you know what? Why don't you guys just improvise something funny? We just need to get some stuff of you guys flirting. And I saw the sticky note, and I said, are you going to Angela's cat party? And it made it into an episode. And then from there, you know, seeds were planted. One of the things that uh, that I imagine must be a structural challenge of this show is, is that, you know, on a traditional sitcom, you know, there are a few stages and whoever's in a scene is, is on the stage that happens to be shooting that day. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and everybody else is like uh, hanging out in the what, however big a trailer their agent got them or whatever. Right. <laughs> Um, I, that's my understanding of what Hollywood is. That's pretty good. Okay, thank you. Um, in the office, like seventy-five um, percent of the show is set in one space where everyone works, and everyone may or may not end up being on camera. Yeah. Um, is, what do you do, like, in the time when you're on camera, but not in the scene? Oh my gosh. Well, I think it was like in the middle of year two they got us real internet on our computers <laughs> and we all were so I think we were ready to revolt because we used to just sit there. I mean, we used to just sit there and like for hours and hours at this <laughs> fake desk with nothing to do. And, um, I used to, like, I read a couple of books, um, but now we have internet. And so we do things like shop online. I think, um, the guy who plays Stanley, I think he like furnished his whole apartment <laughs> by like shopping online he was always like showing me a new credenza or something um and it's good because if he sees a a piece of furniture he disapproves he can make that good stanley face that's right exactly so it all works 
but no, so we do a lot of emailing and um, MySpacing. That was we were really into MySpace early on. We would MySpace a lot from our computers, and uh, yeah. So now that's what we do. Is it weird to work in that context? It, like I just imagine that you know when you're in Blades of Glory and Will Ferrell does something really ridiculous, you'd have this like burning temptation to kind of like make a mild look of disapproval to the camera. (laughs) That has actually happened. When I was in Blades of Glory, it was my first day of shooting, and I had to do a scene with uh, Will Arnett and Amy Poehler. And it was a scene where they say, group hug, and then they mean each other and they exclude me. (laughs) And um, I looked at the camera twice in two different takes. I did a look to camera like Pam would. And I had to, I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, forget, right, 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 this camera's not here. Okay, sorry, 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 go again, go again. And then I did it again. So you do, it is like, it is a completely different acting exercise to regard the camera or disregard the camera. And I I have to say, like, I love working on The Office. I like it that there's like 12 of us all in the same space. And some of my favorite memories are the conference room scenes. I mean, there's the cast members plus all these cameramen and all the boom operators. We're all just in this tiny room all together, stinking up the place for like five hours doing those long conference room scenes. And we have some of the most fun. I mean, whenever we do our read-throughs and we see conference room scene, we all sort of moan. We're like, oh, conference room scene. Do you remember something, a a particular conference room scene? Well, I remember one that made me laugh really hard this year was during the weight loss episode. It was the premiere episode, and we had this huge like spread of food, all like the most disgusting food. And just if you put like a cheese fountain in a room with like <laughs> Ed Helms and John Krasinski and Prime Baumgartner and Rain Wilson, like they're going to start doing disgusting things with the cheese. <laughs> it's like too tempting for them. So they really entertained us with all the various things that they covered in cheese <laughs> in between takes, food and non-food items. Well, uh, Jenna, it was, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. Jenna Fisher is one of the stars of uh, the NBC television program, uh, The Office, which you can catch on NBC Thursday nights. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our editor is Nick White. Over there in the back is my intern. Hey! Brian. Brian. Uh... We're online at MaximumFun.org, and if you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me directly at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. And hey, how about this? Tell a friend about the show if you like it. Yeah, here's my efforts at marketing. We'll see you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>